Hi, this is Father Tim, and welcome to RTB, Read the Bible Podcast. RTB offers students a Bible reading plan with commentary and questions and answers as they go on the journey to read the Bible. Good evening, everybody. Welcome once again back to RTB, where we are going through in this second semester, The Prophets. We are well underway, and we're clearly now into the Minor Prophets. And tonight, we're going to dive in pretty quickly because we're going to try to cover three of the Minor Prophets. Remember, the Minor Prophets are minor not because they necessarily are less important, but because, in one sense, they're just shorter. And they have, especially when we view them as a collective whole, incredible insights and prophecy that foreshadowed Jesus Christ and his church. And you'll actually see tonight we're covering the prophets Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. You'll see that uh, actually in two out of these three, especially the early church quotes them to help understand what it is that the Lord is doing in the early church and how we understand even the structure and the governance of the church. Okay, so for this, we're just going to dive right in and start with the book of Joel. Now, the book of Joel, um, the name Joel itself means the Lord is God. And kind of the general message of Joel is a call for repentance in the face of judgment, that there's plagues and judgments that are coming, and that there's this coming day of the Lord that is going to bring with it judgment. And as I've often said in the other prophets, anytime there's judgment, There is always an opportunity for hope, or anytime there's a call for repentance, there's a call for hope and restoration, and so we see that. Now, both for Joel and especially Obadiah, this is where it's going to be a little bit difficult to understand exactly what's going on, because my sort of approach to help you understand the prophets largely falls short in some of these minor prophets. That idea of if you can understand when the prophets are speaking, and to who they're speaking, that it gives you a greater insight to understand their message. Well, that one's a little bit harder, especially with Joel, where some scholars have described the book of Joel as resisting dating, that it's very difficult to understand exactly when Joel was writing. And so there's an ancient Jewish tradition that places him all the way back to the 8th century, so basically to the time of Hosea, prior to the Assyrian uh, exile. But most moderns date him well, well later, closer to 450 to 400 BC. So you almost have a 500-year gap in terms of of who Joel is, or when Joel is prophesying and who he's speaking to. Now, it's interesting. You can kind of understand that. I will also try to make it difficult because he's going to talk about a coming military invasion and trying to understand which invasion he's talking about is going to depend largely upon, uh, upon when he's writing, right? Now, as it relates to some of this sort of stuff, it's, it is less important as we see um, what this book really offers us in our daily life, where, where you can um, really ascribe to either one and you can see great fruits. And, and in one sense, the question is not that important at the end of the day anyway, okay? What is important is that this is the Word of God and that this is uh, impactful and powerful for our lives. And there is a true call for repentance um, that Joel speaks of and a true future judgment that, that Joel is speaking of. Okay? So as it relates to his personal life, there is little known of the prophet Joel as well, and there's not any real clear references. But if you can kind of see 
at the start of the Minor Prophets, it's Hosea, Joel, and Amos. And I think it kind of works better to see him in this sort of ancient Jewish tradition as a similar person to the uh, to Hosea and Amos in terms of who they're preaching to largely in the north. But at the same time, later on, you'll see once again that some of the, some of the prophecies seem to talk a little bit more clearly to the Babylonian exile. Again, which one is right and true? We won't know probably this side of heaven. But let's dive into the text either way, and let's draw some important conclusions for our lives. So the book of Joel, chapter 1. The book of Joel starts, and actually we'll just kind of uh, dice Joel into two parts. The first part is a plague of locusts on Judah, and the second half is the coming of the day of the Lord. Okay, so it's plague, locusts, coming of the day of the Lord, and then with that we do actually have hope towards the end. But let's open up book of Joel, chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you aged men, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and splintered my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin clothed with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The cereal offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are laid waste, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine fails, and the oil languishes. Okay, so as we start off, we see that the words come to Joel, son of Pethuel. Not much known about who this Pethuel is, but clearly Joel is a prophet of whom has received the word of the Lord. And what is this word? It's a plague of locusts coming to destroy. But these locusts are like almost like this military invasion. And what you see is that basically it's going to come and bring destruction. The priests are going to mourn. Everything's going to be laid waste. There's going to be grain destroyed, wine just uh, not coming forth and even oil not coming forth. We'll see those three elements uh, in the next chapter, but it's just kind of coming to see that a plague of locusts. The first time we hear that, the question is, well, where have we heard this before? And we go all the way back to the book of Exodus, where one of the plagues was locusts that came and destroyed. And this was, of course, a natural phenomenon that would happen in times past where locusts would come. They're pests that would destroy. And so here in the prophetic understanding, what this is saying is that there's a certain sense of evil and destruction that is going to come, especially as we see this as a sort of military invasion. So this is clearly not just an ordinary array of locusts. This is something that is brought in by God that brings to it destruction. What and when exactly is he talking about? Lots of people disagree. But the key thing is, is basically there is destruction in trial coming, and it is coming 
because of the lack of repentance, because of the sinfulness of the people of Israel. Okay? And so, what does he call them to do? Well, chapter 1, verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because cereal offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. So what he's saying is that this is going to bring destruction. And what is coming? The day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a very important theme that is throughout certainly all of the minor prophets in one way or another, but definitely in this book, and you'll see it in other books as well. But it's a day representing destruction, judgment, where it definitely symbolizes the end of the world. There's no question that the day of the Lord is referring to, or the day of Yahweh actually, is this end of the world. This is how the Christian church has really understood that. And yet, this day of the Lord seems to also have a certain temporary fulfillment where um, a certain destruction does happen. So the destruction of Jerusalem in 587, even the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there's a certain prefiguring of the day of the Lord, this, this destruction. We also had mentioned that the day of the Lord also in many texts, you can see clear, it's clearly pointing and foreshadowing the crucifixion of Jesus the great and terrible day, because it's talk about the destruction, the evil that will happen on this day, but there's also hope from this day. In one sense, it's why we use the term Good Friday, that the day Jesus died, we can strangely say is good, even though it was the worst day in history, it actually ended up being the day of our salvation. And so Joel is announcing that there is a day of the Lord coming, and he wants people to recognize that. Chapter 2 continues to say that the day of the Lord is coming. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been from of old nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Jumping down, verse 4, Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Jumping down again, The earthquakes, this is verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his host is exceedingly great. He that executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now, as we read through this, we see, again, these sort of military invasion of locusts that are coming in the form of horse, almost like horses with loud thunder that are coming blowing from a trumpet. 
you actually see this very strange imagery repeated in chapter 9 of the book of Revelation. In both times, there is a trumpet sounded, that there are locusts that are coming like small horses and that are causing destruction. Even this phrase, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining, also in Revelation to describe the end of the world, to describe coming destruction, okay? So what do we kind of make out of this? Well, obviously, the people that Joel would speak into would understand the power of a military invasion, but they'd also understand just this imagery of locusts and what sort of, that, what sort of destruction that would be. So this is symbolic, metaphorical, you could even say apocalyptic imagery to describe that judgment and war is coming. All right? So the day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? Now, chapter 2, verse 12 is one of the more common or one of the more famous passages of the book of Joel, where it says, Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and repents of evil. Who knows whether or not he will turn and repent and leave a blessing behind him, a cereal offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregations, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. So this passage here, chapter 2, verse 12, is actually read every year on Ash Wednesday. So this, in one sense, to kind of take for how do we Christians read and understand this book of Joel, it's a call for repentance. It's a call that we hear every time we go to Mass on Ash Wednesday, saying, what do we do? We call for a fast. We gather the people. We recognize that there is judgment that is due towards all of us, and we need to prepare for that. And how do we do this? Well, this beautiful line, return to me with all your heart. This is what I covered last time. This is what Jesus wants of us, our hearts. He doesn't just want burnt offerings and sacrifices that do him nothing. He wants our hearts. So return to him with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful. So this is a wonderful line to pray with, to meditate on. And the early church um, saw this as a call to repentance for the early Christians, and we have used it for centuries now as this entrance into Lent. And so you actually, as you kind of think about how do I remember the book of Joel and its importance, the first part is, okay, remember that the book of Joel offers a call for repentance and calls for a true fast to rend our hearts, to return with our whole hearts, okay? Now at the bottom it says, you actually see after this initial part of kind of challenge and, and struggle with the day of the Lord, things get slightly more positive because you actually already see that the Lord is going to that he's slow to anger, gracious and merciful. And it says in verse 9, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you approach a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his front into the eastern sea and his rear into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. 
Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Why I mention this is that grain, wine, and oil are things that will make us satisfied according to the book of Joel. Grain, wine, and oil are three things clearly used in the church for sacraments. Grain for the Eucharist, wine for the Eucharist, for the chalice, and oil for confirmation and anointing. Um, And there's even an anointing with baptism. So basically saying that with this return to the Lord, that the Lord will satisfy us in this moment of trial and destruction. How does the Lord actually fill our spiritual needs today? Well, it's through the sacraments. It's through the sacraments. And he kind of says, fear not, um, as he continues on. And even verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 25, it says, I will restore to you the years which the swarming locust has eaten. I think that's a powerful line as well because it says that the Lord is going to cause or allow, you could better say, famine, destruction, trial, right? But he's going to restore it. That we believe in something called redemptive suffering, that nothing in this world cannot, there's nothing is irredeemable that cannot be used later for our good. And that's where you see this total end times understanding is that, yes, at the end of, the, at the end of our days, we will definitely come to understand that what seemed like a cause for sadness, what seemed like punishment even, is for a benefit. That's a truth that we actually need really in our spiritual lives, to understand that everything can be used for our good. Chapter 2, verse 27 says, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. I am in the midst of Israel. I am with you, is what he is saying. And it speaks to the incarnation, to the power that Jesus is with his people. And it is in recognizing that Jesus is with his people that we have another passage that is um, arguably the most important uh, passage of the book of Joel. And that is Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even upon the men servants and the maid servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. This passage from Joel 2.28 about after these days the Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh is quoted directly by Luke in the Acts of the Apostles as describing the event of Pentecost. The day that the Holy Spirit descends upon the Apostles and they go preach to all nations. And literally Acts 2 verse 15 through 21, it literally quotes Joel directly. So Peter literally stands up, and it's literally Peter's first, got first proclamation of the gospel, you can even say. And he said, this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And there will be great signs and wonders. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the day of the Lord comes the great and manifest day. And it shall be that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is actually, if I, I cut off on Joel short, you'll actually see he, he says all of this too. This is Joel chapter 2, verse 30. I will give signs in the heavens and on the earth, the blood and the fire and the columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Okay, so again, if we talk about temporary fulfillment of prophecy and final fulfillment of prophecy, we see how this all kind of makes sense. That, okay, there's this understanding that the Lord will send forth his spirit upon all nations. And we know that this is fulfilled most fully in Pentecost. The day that the Holy Spirit is given to all of the apostles and they preach to the nations. We see that the church is not just for the people of Israel, but is for the whole world. And of course, when does that happen? That happens after this day of destruction. It happens 50 days after the, resurrect, after the crucifixion, right? That we could say is a day of the Lord where there was destruction, but afterwards, and that's what he says, and it shall come to pass afterwards, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So you can kind of see that this prophecy of Joel is very important, pointing to Pentecost, which comes after the crucifixion of Jesus. But it also says, and Peter quotes as well, that there will be, continue to be, signs in heavens, blood, that everything will be turned to darkness before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you see, even after this moment of fulfillment of Pentecost, there still is yet a day of the Lord to be fulfilled, the end of the world, right? Now, this, this moon shall become dark is also the same language as used in Matthew to describe the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So anytime there's a big destruction, especially of Jerusalem, it foreshadows the end of the world, but ultimately at the end of the world is when this comes. Now, one last thing that's important about this is because he says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered or shall be saved. Paul himself quotes this directly in the book of Romans, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there are cer certain um, largely Protestant Christian denominations that kind of use this to, to say that, well, once saved, always saved, that it, all we need to do is call upon the Lord for faith, and then we will be saved. But if we read this in context, so read Paul in his context of Romans, drawing upon Peter in Acts and Joel in this book, we come to see that all he is saying is that in the time of temptation, if you call upon the Lord, he will save you. He will hear you. The context is so very important. The time of temptation, the time of trial, in a sense, the end of the world, <laughs> but in the moment of any sort of trial, that if we call upon the name of the Lord in those temptations and trials, he will come to us. And that's so very important for us to understand too, especially understanding that we also have the Holy Spirit with us. That we as Christians have received the power of the Holy Spirit that was poured about on all flesh, which then prepares us, the power of confirmation in our lives prepares us for suffering. And so understanding that, we know that we can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved in our trials and temptations. Chapter 3 is the last chapter in this short book. For in behold, in those days, this is verse 1, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them on account. So God is saying that there will be a day of restoration, but that will also come with judgment. The valley of Jehosh Jehoshaphat just means the Lord has judged. So there's going to be a final judgment. That's what this is talking about. Again, the day of the Lord, the final end... <laughs> is a day of judgment, right? 
In chapter 3, verse 10, there's a familiar passage that appears in both Isaiah and Micah, which talks about that prepare for war, but when the days draw near, we will beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, lest the weak say, I am a warrior. And so actually it's kind of the opposite in one sense of, um, of understanding that there's going to be certain peace and certain war, but that phrase of plowshares and swords, pruning hooks and spears is also seen in, um, in Isaiah and Micah. Okay. As we come to the end of Joel, you can read in chapter 3, verse 14, For the day of the Lord is near, the valley of decision, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwell in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and the water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, and I will not clear the guilty, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So again, a moment of kind of hope and judgment, right? Which really does speak to the crucifixion, right? The moment where water shall flow, a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. That at the crucifixion, a fountain flows from the side of Christ, right? And that God is saying that there will be judgment. But ultimately, it is Judah and Jerusalem, this, and eventually this heavenly Jerusalem at the end of the world, that the Lord wants to dwell, that this is his people that he has chosen. And so there will be justice done, there will be judgment, but that judgment is from God himself, who is a merciful, just judge. Okay? So the prophet Joel, is, it's, a, it's a tough book. Um, key takeaways is that it's the book we read to prepare for Lent, to return to the Lord with your whole heart in those moments of trial, to fast, to render your hearts, not your garments, and to recognize that Joel speaks about a day of the Lord, which refers to certainly the crucifixion, but ultimately the end of the world. And we then, if we have received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as is prophesied by Joel and by Peter, that we can especially withstand temptation. And if we call upon God in time of trial, we'll be saved. And so judgment but ultimately hope. Again, it's just a key thing from all the prophets. Okay, let's dive right in now to the book of Amos. The book of Amos um, is much clearer in terms of its timing and dating and who he's speaking of. The book of Amos um, is written likely around the year 770 to 760 BC. And Amos, his name exact, his name means burdened, and Amos is, like Hosea, speaking specifically to the northern kingdom. He is speaking to the northern kingdom before the fall of, uh, of a, or before the Assyrian exile in 722. So well before the Assyrian exile. Most people actually say he is the first prophet written at all. That there's enough evidence kind of in there that kind of shows that he himself um, was the earliest prophet. 
Now he, unlike Hosea, was, who was from the north, um, Amos was actually from Tekoa, which is a village south of Jerusalem. So he's actually from the south, but called to preach in the north. And you see this, there's actually a biographical section in chapter 7, where he talks where he's actually not a sort of professional prophet. He's just a sheep herder who's called to pass on this beautiful message, right? And so it's kind of interesting. You see that he actually kind of uses, hey, guys, I'm not trying to do this <laughs> for any sort of gain of myself. The Lord has just called me. And um, Amos, more than any of the other prophets, really speaks to the need for justice, right? Where we talked about the two things that the prophets speak against is right worship, preaching against idolatry, but then also preaching against injustice, especially uh, uh, social injustices, right? So Amos is going to be very clear um, in calling out a number of challenges and injustices towards the people of uh, Israel and the, especially the people of Israel in the north, okay? So much of the sort of um, concern for care for the poor and the needy, uh, especially in the Old Testament, you really see powerfully in Amos. As it relates to the structure of Amos, this, this is a longer book than Joel, nine chapters in full, and it's very repetitive and structured very well. So you actually see a lot of phrases continually repeated. So you see like, for three transgressions and for four. He talks about, woe to you. Um, he repeats the phrase, you did not return to me. And almost every of the scholars kind of organize this book around these clear repetitive phrases. So it starts with an oracle of the nations, where it goes through a number of nations. Then it calls upon, uh, it offers these calls to groups to hear the word of the Lord. It then offers woes to Israel for the reasons that they did pervert justice and that they didn't care for the poor. And then it ends with five visions of judgment that kind of speak to um, basically the result of, of the lack of faithfulness to, uh, of the people of Israel, especially the people we're talking Israel in the north, okay? There's also a few key phrases that um, the book of Amos will talk about that also will be used uh, in the New Testament in the early church as well. And Amos, like the other prophets we keep seeing in the minor prophets, speak of the day of the Lord as well, okay? So let's jump into the book of Amos. Amos chapter 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So it opens just, Amos is the shepherd from Tekoa, saying the voice is coming, it's actually roaring, from Jerusalem. We see that image in the Gospels, that the John the Baptist is the lion roaring, uh, proclaiming this, this message. And we actually see several different nations, from Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, and the Ammonites, and the same phrase is repeated, for three transgressions and for four I will not revoke the punishment for three transgressions and for four. And he explains different punishments for each of these areas. What you want to take away is that all of these areas were actually part of the Davidic kingdom. When David was king, all of these areas from 
Gaza to Tyre to Damascus to Edom were all under his power. And so in a certain sense, they are all under judgment. The three and for four, there's some good debate over what exactly it means. It's poetic language where it sort of speaks of the sense of like, this is the last straw because this has happened three and now for four, uh, this is going to happen, right? So the Lord is saying, I'm not revoking the punishment. We're past the time of repentance is kind of what he's saying. So for these punishments and for four, this is what's going to happen. Others have said even that um, three is and four together speak to a certain completion because the number seven is this number of completion um, in the Israelites. And so it sort of sense, speaks of, again, to the fullness of wickedness that has come to all of these places and that, yeah, it is the last straw. Um, there's going to be some sort of judgment. Now, as you go through these lists, what is kind of unique is then the last two that are going to have judgment is Judah and Israel. So it isn't just these other nations that are going to get judgment. It's the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And if you really go through it, who's got the worst judgment coming their way? Israel, the northern kingdom. So again, Amos is speaking and bringing this sort of prophetic doom to the north. So he says, um, so we'll read chapter 2, verse 4. Sorry, verse 6. For thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, that they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn away, turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same maiden, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar upon garments taking in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And it says, I'm going to jump down. And I raised up for some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it indeed, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, says the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, says the Lord. So, a couple things. The punishment on Israel will be swift and strong, and we know this. This is actually what happens. They're taken away in 722, never to return again in many ways. But why? Because they sell the righteous for silver. Okay? Clear allusion to Judas betraying Jesus for what? For silver. A lack of justice. Also, the brothers in the Old Testament um, sold Joseph, one of the 12 brothers, for silver as well. But really then what you see is just this number of series of injustices against the poor, trampling the poor, as well as then um, sexual infidelity, idolatry. But, um, and even that God sent prophets and they didn't listen to the prophets and they just told the prophets not to prophesy. And so, so this is not a good, <laughs> good sign for the people of the north. Okay? So the harshest judgment actually comes in this list for Israel. The next section we have, we have three different calls to hear the word of the Lord. And this is where you see the phrase, 
It starts in chapter 3, verse 1, and it kind of is helpful to even outline this in your Bible. So 3, 1, it says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O sons of Israel. And so the Israelites um, are told of their challenge, right? Um, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall come up. And adversaries shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you. From your strongholds you shall be plundered. So the sons of Israel, that's of the north, are going to, they need to hear that they're going to be punished for this word. Then it says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. And so the cows of Bashan is a phrase that almost everybody has come to understand as sort of the wealthy aristocratic women of Samaria, of the north, where they've kind of settled into this sort of upper class ability to not actually care for, uh, care for the poor. Um, and so they are told to hear the word of, for those who oppress the poor and crush the needy, um, who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink, but they have no care for the poor. And they also um, offer sacrifices uh, to idols as well. And so that sort of uh, um, punishment continues for them quite a while. And this phrase is repeated, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. And the Amos goes through a number of different things that the Lord has done, and it just repeats, yet you did not return to me, yet you did not return to me. I sent you among a pestilence after the manner of Egypt, yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you, yet you did not return to me. Therefore, thus I will do it to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. I think this is where it's actually very helpful to read the prophets, the minor prophets, in their canonical order, is because what did we just hear in Joel? Return to me with your whole heart. And here we have Amos saying, the Lord did all this for you. And what did you not do? You didn't return to me. And therefore punishment, destruction follows. The next one to hear is the house of Israel here this word which I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Um, he says in chapter 5, verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal. Seek the Lord and live. And so he's saying, don't go to your sanctuaries. Bethel and Gilgal were the two sanctuaries where they offered sacrifice in the north. But these are sacrifices to idols. They are not the priesthood that the Lord established in Jerusalem. And so what's going to happen? There's a certain woe that is going to come. So now you see three woes that are declared on Israel. Woe to those that pervert justice. That starts in chapter 5, verse 7. Woe to those who seek the day of the Lord. That's in 5, verse 18. And woe to those who are at ease in Zion and Samaria, those that sort of have this ease of life. And so again, you see this repetition. And it's good and important to know as you kind of get this kind of poetic, difficult language to understand, you also see this again in the book of Revelation, where you see this sort of offering and woe, offering and woe. And this repetition is very common in allegorical, poetical language. 
He calls them to seek good and not evil that you may live. That's chapter 5, verse 14. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So he's trying to call them to a certain repentance, but they obviously don't listen. One thing that is of importance in chapter 5, verse 21, he strongly chides them for their worship. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beasts, I will not look upon you. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harp. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Some commentators have taken this to show how God doesn't want sort of liturgical worship in his church now which is clearly too far. What God is calling to these people through the prophet Amos is that, again, these are the people in the north who are offering false worship and false temples in a priesthood that wasn't set up. And so their feasts do nothing for him. He didn't call them to do this. But what is he calling them to do in the north where there is no, where the temple is, in the, is actually in the south? He's calling them to justice, to care for their neighbor, which is what they're not doing. And that's why chapter 5 verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream is a beautiful image that was quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. twice, um, calling for, for justice within the land, especially as it related to race, right? So understanding that this Amos, the book of Amos is largely um, concerned with justice and care for neighbor, equality, um, care for the poor. Um, Okay, continuing on, much, much more challenges, right? So basically there's woe, grieve, grief towards, uh, towards the people, and that continues by and large. Let's go to the last section of the book, which is five visions of the judgment that is coming from Amos. This starts in Amos chapter 7, where again our locusts return. And there's the first vision is a swarm of locusts. So... The Lord God showed me, behold, he was forming locusts in the beginning and was shooting up the ladder. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beg you, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord repented concerning this, saying, It shall not be. Then there's a second vision of rain of fire. The Lord God showed me, behold, the Lord God was calling for judgment by fire, and it devoured the great and deep and was eating up the land. And again, we have this repetition. O Lord God, cease, I beg you. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord repented. This also shall not be. He showed me the third vision is a plumb line, a plummet in the hand of the Lord. He showed me the Lord was standing beside a wall with a plumb line. Amos, what do you see? A plumb line. Um, From there, there's a kind of interlude section about Amaziah, a priest of Bethel, was sent by Jeroboam to the king of Israel saying, that Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple for the kingdom. And so what you see here in this little section here, which kind of interrupts the, three, the five visions, is 
Amos is a true prophet sent by God from the south to the north, but he's prophesying against the north. And the kings of the north are saying, we don't want to listen to you. This cannot be true. And the, the priest or the king in the north is saying to the king of the south, why are you sending this guy? But he's obviously sent by God. And this is where you actually see Amos reply that I'm not a prophet. I'm just a herdsman. <laughs> I'm doing what I was told. And there's a beautiful sense where it's just, yeah, Amos is, is actually sent with a really tough message. He is sent to basically be persecuted and yet he continues. The second to last vision is this vision of the summer fruit. Um, God showed the basket of summer fruit and he said, what do you see? A basket. Then the Lord said, the end has come upon my people Israel and I will never pass by them again. It's a weird phrase. It depends on what your Bible says for summer fruit, but it's actually a play on word in Hebrews saying that the end is coming, that the end is coming for the northern kingdom of Israel. This is, this, there's going to be destruction. And it's interesting when there is destruction, again, we have the darkening of the sun, the moon covered up, right? This imagery that we've seen a number of times. And in chapter 8, as part of this passage, we have a line that says, And on that day, this is this day of end and destruction. And on that day, says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will, bring such, I will bring sackcloth upon all loins and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. This is well worth underlying because they're saying at noon the sun will go down. On that day, the day when there will be mourning for an only son. So if you read the gospel of Mark, he is very clear that when Jesus is on the cross, there is darkness that starts at noon throughout the whole day. It goes till three o'clock. And so we see it prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus all the way back in Amos. Very specific details that are absolutely fulfilled perfectly by the gospel writers describing what eyewitnesses had seen. So it's a beautiful sense where, again, how do we understand this kind of day of the Lord, this moment of destruction? And we understand it through the crucifixion, but we ultimately understand it as uh, the end of the world as well, right? And what day is it, right, when Jesus dies? It is a famine. (laughs) There is mourning. The, The word of the Lord, the word himself is no more. Okay. Chapter 9, there's another vision of destruction in the sanctuary. And uh, yeah, lots of, lots of judgment and lots of uh, doom from Amos, right? And, but, and so again, why is that happening? The context, he's speaking to the north before the fall. The Lord knows what's going to happen. But as per usual, it doesn't end with a bad note. That book ends Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booths of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper 
and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land, and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So he ends with a promise that he will never again take them, that they will be restored, that there will be growth, right? That the people will return. But actually chapter, Acts chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 is again a very important passage that is quoted by the early church in Acts of the Apostles chapter 15. Acts of the Apostles chapter 15 is the first council in the history of the church where they're trying to figure out as the church spreads, what do converts to the faith have to do? Especially if someone is a non-Jewish convert to the faith, does a man have to be circumcised before he becomes Christian? Very important question that it relates to how do we actually spread the faith? And it is actually, again, um, actually this time James quotes Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 directly to say, all the nations are called to be part of the kingdom of David that has fallen. And so what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is not just for the people of Israel or the people of Judah, it's for the whole world. And yes, we are called to bring everybody into this kingdom. So Amos prophesies of a restored Davidic kingdom that is international for the whole world. And the early church used this, James quoted Amos to help settle what exactly new converts had to do. So that's the book of Amos. Big takeaways is here's a preacher, here's a prophet from the south who has to give this tough message, and he's calling the people of the north to justice, to love their neighbor. And there's lots more that we could have dove into to see where it's just a call to care for the poor, to not take things lightly, especially in this area of the north where they are engaged in idol worship and there's kind of false sanctuaries that the people are called to truly be a, um, a light. And if not, then clear um, punishment and judgment does ensue. But again, there is always hope. And there's hope not just for the people of the north, but for the whole world. Okay. Very briefly, our third book in today is the book of Obadiah. We can cover this very briefly because Obadiah is, in fact, the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. Very brief book, and it's uh, not heavily quoted in the New Testament either. So um, we can cover it very briefly. The name Obadiah just means servant of the Lord. And uh, the ancient Jewish tradition places him as the disciple of Elijah. And you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18 that Obadiah was a chief steward in the kingdom of Ahab. That's the northern kingdom. So then some people see him as a ninth century prophet. But just like Joel, a lot of people, because of what he's writing about, see him actually as a post-Babylonian um, exile prophet. So again, we've got a huge gap of about 500 years that people debate when exactly his... Um, his uh, he's writing to. And what is the, what is the message? It's basically, um, the message is one of basically that 
Obadiah is representing the nation of Edom, or Edom actually comes from an Old Testament person named Esau. So to understand Obadiah, you kind of have to know your Old Testament as well, the book of Genesis, where you actually have Israel, um, or Jacob, I'm sorry, is the son Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament are brothers. They're the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the younger, Esau is the older, but there's this whole story about how Jacob tricks his brother and receives the blessing and the birthright from Esau. And as a result, the blessing, the, the Messiah actually runs through Jacob's line. And actually then Jacob and Esau separate and the land of Edom, which is to the east of Jerusalem, is the descendants of, of, uh, of Esau. And so this whole book is basically an oracle against Edom as a sort of metaphor because the nation of Edom will be fallen under judgment because throughout history, Edom did take advantage of Judah and Jerusalem. And so there was certain persecution of Israel, of Judah in particular by Edom, okay? And there's a number of ways where that happens. So, for example, um, and basically as a whole, this book is a metaphor for all the nations that opposed Judah and Israel. For any sort of person who doesn't actually trust in who the Lord has, has provided. Um, but in a particular way, the Edomites did refuse the Israelites' passage into the Promised Land after they were set free from Israel. They tried to go through Edom, and the Edomites said no. Um, later, the Edomites battled with the armies of King Saul and King David. And then later, when the Babylonians were laying waste to Judah and Jerusalem, the Edomites participated in the conquest and plundered the land as well. And it's because of that latter conquest of uh, basically Edom taking in the spoil during the Babylonian exile in particular that most people think this is a much later book, okay? But basically what this book says is the key takeaway at the end is um, it says that the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Um, this is chapter, there's no chapters. It's just verse 15. Um, verse 12, it talks about how the, the Edomites should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. So he, it's an oracle against the people of Edom saying you guys should not have um, taken such joy because, this is verse 17 on, I'll read to the end. In Mount Zion there shall be those that escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be like a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor to the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, those of the Shephelah, the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Those in Hala, who are the people of Israel, shall, shall possess Phoenicia as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Shephard, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So big takeaway. The promise all the way back to 
in Genesis that the birthright, that the promise would come through Jacob, eventually then through Judah, is true. That Edom, which is the descendant of Esau, will not partake in this blessing. And that they will come to judgment and that it is saviors, you could even read this as Messiah, would go up to Mount Zion, that is Jerusalem, and will eventually rule Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's the Lord that will enter into this kingdom. Again, a universal kingdom. So Augustine actually saw this as understanding that the kingdom of the Lord is the Catholic Church, which, which is the kingdom of Christ present in mystery, as the Vatican II refers to it. But it's basically that there is going to be this kingdom that will start in Jerusalem, but again extend to other nations. Why this is kind of really cool, too, is that at the time of Christ, when Jesus was crucified, the king of Israel was a man named Herod, a brutal man who was convicted and did many, many terrible things. But the interesting thing about Herod is he was kind of not a real king because he wasn't fully an Israelite. He was actually from Edom. He was part Edom, part Israelite. And so who else in particular from Edom persecutes Israel but Herod, who has a chance to spare the life of Jesus and doesn't, puts him to death. So one king, King Herod from Edom or from Esau's line, killing the other true king, Jesus Christ, and whose kingdom is going to last at the end of the day. The saviors will go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That the kingdom that Jesus Christ installs is the everlasting kingdom. It is the final covenant that ultimately brings fullness and everlasting uh, fulfillment into the people of Israel. So that's the short book of Obadiah, just kind of offers up some confirmation of the book of Genesis, as well as I think that insight is cool of seeing that King Herod is the, is the Edomite that puts, in a, in a sense, allows the death of Christ to put to death. But it is ultimately Jesus Christ who installs the kingdom on earth that will, um, will never end, that will be everlasting. Ultimately, that kingdom that the prophets were pointing to. Okay, so there we go. There are three prophets, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. Difficult prophets to understand, but some key passages, especially in the early church, to understand how the church grows and spreads. Next week, we will cover the books of Jonah and the books uh, in the book of Nahum. Two books, Jonah, you're very familiar with. Nahum, another short book, probably less familiar with, but plenty of uh, things to learn. And I actually hope to show Jonah is not quite the book you think it is. It's not quite the children's tale of the fish that you might expect. So with that, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of RTB. If you have questions you would like answered on the podcast, you can email them to Father Tim at tmergen at uwcatholic.org. That's T-M-E-R-G-E-N at uwcatholic.org. Thanks, and be assured of my prayers for you as you read the Bible. Thank you.